Our text this morning is Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. Amos chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend our way through your word. That we might know that you indeed are God. And that we might know, O Lord all that you have done for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't rest on your laurels? Maybe you're not even sure what a laurel is, but you take it to mean that you shouldn't be complacent. You shouldn't sit around. You shouldn't take life or take things 
for granted. And we're prone to do that, aren't we? I'm reminded of it about every week here at our church building, how somehow in about the last 10 years, almost everyone, including people who are on the road all the time, have completely forgotten how to follow directions. We are completely dependent on a little device called a GPS. And and I'm aware of this because we get deliveries from time to time from U-Haul trucks, from FedEx, from various delivery services. And when they ask us for our address, the very first thing we plead with them into the phone is, do not use your GPS. What? If you do, you will end up on the other side of town. Trust me. They've changed the name of the road. They've changed the address. Please don't use your GPS. And it's inevitable. About a half an hour later, we get a call. Where are you? I'm lost. You followed the GPS, didn't you? Yes, I did. Well, now you're halfway across town, like I told you. Maybe you'll follow the directions that I'll give you this time. And and this is true. I'm no better. When I'm lost, the very first thing I do is plug an address into my GPS. That is just, I think, a modern application of the principle that we are not to rest on the past. We are not to trust that we have it all together, that we know what we are doing. And you see, in spiritual matters, that is far more dangerous. And it is a challenge that the church has faced throughout the ages. It's a challenge that the church in the days of Amos faced. They rested upon their past and their past achievements and what they thought were owed to them. And this morning we're going to see how the Lord rebukes them and challenges them. But again, I want us to look at this prophecy from Amos not as a historical curiosity, not as something that is interesting for other people. Because you see, this is a challenge also for you and for me. In today's culture, we are the religious. That's not a bad thing. But if we rest upon it and we forget where our true relationship lies, it can be a very dangerous thing. And so we're going to see Amos continue on his war oracles, so to speak, describing woes for people. And we'll see it in four ways here this morning. First, we will see him admonish Judah and Israel for corrupting the truth. For corrupting the truth. And then we will see him admonish them for being callous to life that is hardened. You know what calluses are, right? Those white marks on your palms that don't feel. He will accuse them of being careless with God's favor. And then finally, he will issue to them a covenant warning. Corrupting the truth, callous to life, careless with God's favor, and a covenant warning. Let's begin then by looking at verse 4. There is a transition going on here. As you recall from last week, Amos was really letting the people of Canaan have it. Three transgressions and four. Burn down the whole city. You're horrible. You're wicked. 
And, and we can imagine in our mind's eye the way this would be received as it was prophesied in Israel. Preach it, brother. Go get them, Amos. Tell them what they're doing wrong. Come on. Could you imagine what it would be like? Well, I think it might be like if we've sat the homosexual lobby here and the evolutionists here and the worst of the criminals of Wall Street there and I began to preach Adam like Amos. If not in our mouths, in our hearts, we would be given some amens, wouldn't we? And who could blame us because we are affronted by that kind of sin, that blatant disregard for God's law. But you see, Amos has a purpose here. It's not just for others. And you can see this a bit better if you look at a map. If you have a map at the back of your Bible of, of Israel in those days, I encourage you to turn to it. If not, I'll try and do my best to describe it. As we look through chapter 1, the first group that is chastised is Syria, that is Damascus. If you don't know where that is, it's up in the very northeast of your map. And then the second group that is chastised is Gaza and the Philistines. And you know where they are. They are in the very southwest of your map. And then the next group to be challenged is Tyre, which is in the northwest of your map. And then we see Edom in the southeast. Do you picture it? Here, 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 and here. And then Edom and Moab here in the middle, and now Judah and Israel. Do you know what Amos is doing? Kids, how do you find pirates' buried treasure? Where do you know where it is? X marks the spot, right? And we go around in the sand looking for a big black X. That's exactly what Amos is doing. He's drawing a huge X. He is drawing a net around Israel. And every time they say, Amen, preach at those people who steal. Amen, preach at those people who are immoral. They are condemning themselves. You see, X marks the spot here. Amos is narrowing in because God does not show favoritism. God is not American. We tend to think that the world revolves around us, our family, our community, our church, our nation, when in reality we are under the exact same standards that everyone else in the world is under. The Lord is the Lord of the universe. And so what he begins then to do here now through Amos is to press the point home to those who previously thought that they were the finger pointers. And now they're realizing they're being pointed at. And the very first thing that they are doing is corrupting the truth. You see it here in verse 4. He is going to punish Judah, the Lord is, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Instead... Lies have led them astray, and after which their fathers walked. You see, what they are guilty of here is replacing God's word with man's word. If this doesn't sound like a new thing, it's not. It is the very challenge that you face every day when you go to work or the grocery store 
or the gym or school. You see, it is the very first challenge that was given to the church in Genesis 3 when Satan slid up beside Eve and said, Did God really say that? Are you sure? Are you sure he didn't say this? Are you sure he didn't mean that? You see, there are always competing voices. There are always voices that want to compete to be the authority in your life. Some are voices of psychology. Some are voices of money. Some are voices of sports. Some are voices of common sense. But you see, there are competing voices that seek to displace God's word. But nothing else is a safe guide, Amos says. The only safety that is found is in the word of God. Because you see, the next step is not only to replace God's word with man's word, but then to begin to look to lies themselves as if they were truth. Moving the word of God away from its supreme place and replacing it with lies. Now, this also can be deceptive because you know that lies come in many different forms. And any parent who has intelligent children knows that when you ask a question and the child is not quite forthright, usually they're intelligent enough not to tell a blatant lie. Why is your room a mess? Um, Attila the Hun came through with his horses. No, it's a little bit more subtle. Oh, I didn't know you meant I was supposed to clean it today. Oh, I thought you meant I was supposed to clean it tomorrow. I'm sorry. That kind of small twist, right? That's what we are faced with. In our minds and our hearts, we desire to follow after lies. Lies that are convenient for us, that we think will help us. This is what happens to the people of God. They replace God's word. But they also do more than that. They reject God's word. You see, because God's word is God himself drawing near to us. If we look at the word, they have rejected, in verse 4, the law of the Lord. This word for law makes us think of a written code. Perhaps you think of a 2,000-page bill that Congress passes. It's some objective thing that's cold and out there. But to the Hebrew, the word law meant instruction. It meant hearing the word of God and acting upon it. And you see, when we reject the law of the Lord, when we reject the word of the Lord, we are not rejecting something out there. We are rejecting God, desiring to draw near to us, to enfold us in his arms, to tell us what is best for us. It's a dangerous thing to reject God's word. Because you see, only God's word and God's truth is the safeguard of the church. It's the only thing that is permanent. That's why it's also described as his statutes. You know what a statute was in those days. It was something carved into a stone tablet. It was permanent. You see, when we walk away from this, we're in a very dangerous place. 
Because you see, this kind of rejection is a rejection of the whole man. It is not just a mental thing. You see, rejecting God's truth begins in the mind, but it does not end there. It moves from a mental state of, I don't think this is really proper, to a state of despising. Oh, that's a waste of my time. Why would I do that? To a state of dismissal. Oh, come on. You and your fuddy-duddy Ten Commandments. Nobody listens to that anymore. A sliding slope that then leads us to think that the way that we act is up to us and not God's Word. And we can be prey to this. We in the church who love the inerrancy of the Scriptures and love the Bible, we can find ways to equivocate. We look at a plain command from God and we say to ourselves, I wonder what that says in the original languages. I wonder if that was just for Paul's time, not for our time. You see, we equivocate because we don't want to be under that word. Because, you see, the life that we have arises from the mental decisions that we make. Despising truth, corrupting the truth, is dangerous. But... A rejection of the truth does not end in the mind, as we've said. It moves then on to a life that is marked by callousness. Look with me at verse 6. After chastising Judah for a rejection of God's truth, Amos then begins (coughs) to preach judgment on Israel for the way that they live their lives. First, on the way that they live life with others, and then secondly, the way they treat the life they have received from God. Look here. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, Amos says. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor. They do all sorts of immorality. You see, now Amos has turned his sights around Israel and he is beginning to be longer, more detailed. You can almost imagine the audience now being a bit unnerved. There are no more amens from the congregation. There is a shifting in the seat, a loosening of the tie, a wondering, is he talking about me or you? This is the point brought home by Amos. He says, you are guilty of economic oppression. You sell the righteous for silver. One who has righteousness in his cause, you will sell out to make a buck. And then you will say to yourself, well, you know, business is business. I can't help it if that ruined that man and his family. Hey, I got to make a living. And then it's not even just that business is business. They go after the needy, the ones who are weak, and they are sold for a pair of sandals. Now, what does this mean? It means that when someone was indebted, if they couldn't pay the debt, their goods or their person could be sold into slavery to pay that debt. Now, we're not talking about a $5 trillion debt. We're not talking about a $500 million debt. We're not even talking about a $10,000 debt. We're talking about owing $695 for a pair of cheap sandals. And rather than showing mercy and grace, 
the people of Israel, God's people, get up on their high horse and say, well, you know, these debts have to be paid. Into slavery. Oh, by the way, let's condemn Edom over here. You know, those slave traders. You see, this is the other thing that's going on here. They're oppressing people economically. They're lusting after others' land and goods. <coughs> and they're becoming just like the nations around them. You see, that's at the core of what Amos is trying to say. We may think we are different, but if our actions are not, it's just pretend time. We must not only think we are different, we must act different. We must not fall into the same sins as those who do not have God's word, who are not open to the law of God. Because you see, the grace that God shows to his people in giving them his word, in giving them his law, in providing redemption for them should make a difference. The Israelites should look in a mirror and say, we were redeemed from slavery by the living God. Not for anything we did. Maybe we should treat others with kindness and not enslave them. But they don't. They fall into old patterns of self-righteousness, of self-conceit and self-centeredness. They're marked by a life with others that is mean and cruel. But it goes beyond that. Because you see, the life that we live with others is also a picture of how we view the life that we have received from God. Because you see, it is not wickedness in a vacuum, so to speak. You remember we said that the other nations weren't given God's law. But the Israelites had the law of God. And when they act this way, they are acting completely contrary to what God has said and commanded. Their sin is in a very real sense worse than that of all the nations because it is deliberate and it is with knowledge. Have you thought about that with your own life? Have you thought about the fact that in light of grace, when you are not generous... But when you shave corners to take things that are not your own, a box of paper clips from the office, one decimal point on a tax return, that it is worse than the heathen burning down towns and robbing them. Not worse temporally, but worse because you have the knowledge of the living God. And you have the knowledge that that sin has consequences, that it cost the Lord Jesus Christ his life to pay for it. You see, when you begin to think of sin in those terms, we begin to think more about ourselves and how we owe so much to the Lord and less about how we can fix other people out there. You can't start out there. You must start in here. You see, we see this in a, in a word picture that Amos gives. He says, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in, their, in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those that have been fined. Now this is a, 
a quilt of sin, if you were. A mosaic. What it is, is a description of many different sins brought together in one action. A man and his son, a father and son, are becoming womanizers. Everyone is a womanizer. No one is free. And they go into the temple of God. And they take the cloak that they have taken as a pledge from the poor. And they lay it out before the altar so that they can relax in comfort in God's house. Completely contrary to Exodus 22, which says, if you take a cloak from a man, you must give it back to him at night. Because it's his blanket. And Israel has gotten to the point where they say, well, no, that doesn't really matter. I need to be comfortable here in God's presence. Now, what could I use? Oh, I could use a drink. Where did we get? Oh, with that wine. That wine we got from the guy that we tricked in the law court. And we got, we find him. That's right. We took advantage of him with our class action lawsuit. Let's have a drink and relax. Now, picture it. Israel is in the house of God, relaxing like everything is perfect, and they're committing every sin under the sun. Sexual immorality, theft, abuse, conceit. And they actually think that God is pleased with it. The only way they can think that is to have completely forgotten the Word of God. To be completely careless in approaching God. This is one of the reasons why we must always, no matter how much we know, no matter how encouraged we believe we are, we must always return to the Word of God. It must be our daily bread, our drink, because only there can we know what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what He will do for us. It is only there that we find out of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and the true cost of sin and where we can get a true hatred of sin. If you desire your families to be places of holiness, obedience, and love, I say this with all kindness. Do not make up more rules. Do not be primarily concerned that the rules are obeyed. Now, there's nothing wrong with rules. And there's nothing wrong with obedience. But begin with the Word of God. Begin with what God has done. Begin with what God expects. Begin with who God is. There's a wonderful answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 3. What do the Scriptures principally teach? And they principally teach who God is. And what duty he requires of us. And if we know that, we will be driven to obey his law, to obey his commands, to honor each other. We must know what God has given to us first. And from there, from gratitude, we will see obedience and fruit. Because you see, there's a third problem here that Israel faces. Not only... Have they given up on the truth? And then not only have they been callous to the life that's before them, they're also showing that they are careless with God's favor. They have first and foremost forgotten God's work. God reminds them of this, beginning here in verse 9. 
He says, it was I who destroyed the Amorite. How do you think you got everything you got, people? I wiped out the Amorite. You know those people that were big as oaks, that were powerful, strong as the cedars, you were afraid of? I wiped them out. You know how you got there to start with? I redeemed you from the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. I defeated Pharaoh himself to show my mighty arm, and I draw you out. I brought you by Exodus. And then he says, I was with you in the wilderness. I fed you. I clothed you. I walked with you. I gave you shade and light. And I gave you this land to possess. You see, God is going through the litany of all of the things that he has done to remind Israel of all they have to be grateful for. And how it all comes of God and not of them. Look briefly here at verses 9 through 11. Just let your eye scan and see how many times the word I appears. Over and over again, the Lord is pressing the point. I did this. I was there. I did this. You see, God is reminding them that all that they have is a result of His grace. He is the one who worked. He is the one who is to be worshipped. And there's another twist of a pronoun. Do you see this? Previously in chapter 4, you'll see there are a lot of third-person pronouns. In verse 4, they have rejected their lies. In verse 6, they sell the righteous, those who trample in verse 7. Now here in verses 9 through 11, there's a shift. It's, I brought you up. I did this for your sons. I did this for your young people. You see, he's putting a finer point on it. God is saying, I have done all of this for you, and you have been careless with it. The full salvation that God provides, this story of redemption leaves his people without excuse. There is a line from that old hymn, Jesus paid it all. And that second line is, all to him I owe. You see, when we understand that Jesus has paid it all, it doesn't just tell us that he has done all the work. It tells us that he has made all provision. I can, by God's grace and his spirit, obey his word because Jesus has provided for that. It's not my work. It's the work of the spirit within me. Children, you may have said to yourself, I just can't obey my parents. That's a lie the devil wants you to believe. You can. Not because you're super, not because you're brilliant, but because if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, part of what he has done for you is to equip you and to enable you to obey your parents. Husbands, you are called to love your wives, and you can, because Jesus has made provision. Wives, you are called to submit to your husbands. You can, because Jesus has made provision. This is not a treadmill you must get on and off. It is following after the one who has bought you with his precious blood.
And if life feels like a treadmill to you, if you don't know how you could even get off, if you're not sure how you could possibly ever obey, if all of this just sounds confusing, then you need to go back to first principles. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your full faith and trust in Him for all that you are? Have you abandoned self? Have you abandoned self-righteousness and said that I must follow Jesus? Because you see, when you don't, you end up like Israel here in Amos. You may have your act cleaned up on the outside, but the inside remains dirty. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can truly be changed. Well, there is one other thing that is involved here with being careless with God's favor. It's with ignoring what God has done. Do you see this here in verse 12 and in verse 11? I raised up for you Nazarites, that is, those who had taken a holy vow, I raised up for you prophets. And what did you do? You made the Nazarites drink wine. And you said to the prophets, Shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. You're a downer. Stop telling me what to do. You see, they didn't want to hear from God. They ignored His call for holiness and they ignored the call of His word. The people said no to God. This is the story of the lives of the prophets. It's the story of much of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question that we must think about is, is that our story? Do we want to ignore the word of God when it bites? When it makes us change? When it calls upon us to be different? Or do we displace it with something else? This is the story of Amos. That we are not to ignore the word of God. Because that is where true power is found. Finally and fourthly. Amos gives a covenant warning to the people of Israel. It is... So sharp, it may not even seem like a warning at all. It seems more like a sentence of condemnation. It's frightening to read. Look at verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. We begin to ask ourselves, is, is this a different God? Is this not the God of love and grace and covenant mercy? What, what is he doing? Because you see what he's describing is, I'm going to make you like an empty cart that we dump grain into. Let me modernize and Texasize that for you. It's going to be like a pickup truck. And I'm going to dump gravel and stone and dirt in it and you're going to watch the pickup groan and the tires flatten and the ground give way and the noises creak as you see the pressure of the weight upon it. 
And then someone's going to walk up and say, would you please drive that from here to there? And you're going to look at them and say, you're crazy. This truck won't move an inch. It's so laden down. That's what God is threatening to do to his people. I will freeze you in place and you will never move again. I will burden you down. Because all you want to run is to run to sin. And to run to reject me. And I won't have it anymore, God says. And it's interesting, there's again this same emphasis on I. I will do this, I will do that. But now it's hostile. And there's no escape. Look at verse 14. Flight shall perish from the swift. And the strong shall not retain his strength. No matter what native ability you have, smart people will not be able to string three sentences together. People who are artistic won't even know how to do anything creative. You see, nothing that you have of natural ability can thwart the will of God. But it's not just ability. Skill won't be of any good either. Verse 15, the one who handles the bow shall not stand. The one who rides the horse will not stand. So no ability, no skill, not even any outstanding quality. Verse 16, the stout of heart shall flee away naked in that day. None of this prevails against God. So what will we do in the face of these challenges and these warnings? Will we ignore them? Will we reject them? Or will we take them as an opportunity, a great blessing to examine ourselves? To stay on the path of God's word. To appreciate what God has done in his redemption for us. To seek to become holy because Jesus is holy. That's the challenge for us today in the 21st century American church. To follow after our Lord. To reject lies and to seek to glorify the one who has blessed us beyond all measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that you have come to us in the person of Amos and his prophecy. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would remind us that we are not our own that we are bought with a price, and that that price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to follow after your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.